Good morning. My name is Russ Allen, and I'm the student ministries pastor here. It's always a privilege to be able to share God's word with you. This morning, we're going to continue our series in the I Am Statements of Jesus. And before we get into that, I want to remind you that when Jesus is making these statements, when he's saying, I am, these are declarations of divinity. He is claiming to be God. Because this is the same phrase that God used when he spoke to Moses in the burning bush. He said, I am who I am. Jesus is claiming to be the I am. And so far, we've learned that Jesus said, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. And I am the good shepherd. So this is where we pick up in John chapter 11. You can turn there. We are also going to be looking at John chapter 14. So studying two passages this morning and looking at four I am statements of Jesus. So John chapter 11, beginning at verse 17. We just learned that Lazarus, one of Jesus' friends, has passed away, and Jesus was not there when he died, but has now come. Verse 17 says, now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Go ahead and flip a couple pages over to John chapter 14. Jesus is with his disciples right before he is betrayed and taken to face judgment and crucifixion. John 14, starting at verse 1. Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. 
no one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. So these are some of the most popular and some of the weightiest words that Jesus ever spoke. They're weighty because when you hear them, you must make a decision. You cannot sit on the fence. You cannot pick and choose. If Jesus said something different, perhaps he said, I am a way, or he said he was merely truthful, then it would demand our attention, but it would not necessarily demand our allegiance. However, if indeed Jesus is the embodiment and source of the things that he claims, then we must follow him. And we must follow him at all costs. Or else we must dismiss him as a liar, a lunatic, or a legend. But you better be sure because the stakes are too high. And if you're in here today and you're sitting on the fence or believe that you're sitting on the fence, I would encourage you to re-examine where you're at in light of Jesus' words. Because what you'll find is that there is no fence to sit on. And if you think Jesus is a liar, a lunatic, or a legend, then you need to investigate Jesus' claims at least to make sure in your own mind that his words aren't true. But for the rest of us who do know Jesus as Lord, my prayer is that examining Jesus' words would move us this morning to heartfelt devotion. And so our main point for today is that Jesus alone meets our deepest desire for resurrection a way to the Father, truth, and life. Jesus alone meets our deepest desire for resurrection, a way to the Father, truth, and life. So let's pray. Father, we thank you that we're able to come here to hear your word proclaimed. Lord, your word has power has power to bring us from darkness to light, from death to life. Lord, help us to better understand these words that Jesus spoke, that he is the resurrection, the way, the truth, and the life. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So although these words of Jesus are familiar to many of us, It's important that we fully understand the context before we begin applying them to our life here and now. Both Martha in John 11 and the disciples in John 14 have some sort of background knowledge based on their belief in the Old Testament. Martha in 1124 says she knows there will be a resurrection on the last day. And the disciples too already believe in God and they're trying to still figure out how Jesus fits 
within their existing framework. So I'd like to unpack this a little bit more so that we can better appreciate Jesus' words to his Jewish audience and also for us today as well. I created a graphic that I think will help us as we dig into the Old Testament a little bit, and we can put that up on the screen. The Old Testament tells us that humans lived in Eden, in paradise. This is the world that we all long for because they had a perfect personal relationship with the God of the universe. This is why they were there. However, their pride caused them to reject God and to sin. This severed their relationship with him and caused them to be cast out of perfection because they were no longer perfect. Now, this reality was manifested in a very physical way to a particular group of people, the Israelites. We see this in the construction of the tabernacle and the temple. In the temple, there was the holy place, and within that was the holy of holies. And only certain people could enter these places, and they could only do that at certain times of the year, and it was always to make atonement for the other Israelites because of their sin. They could not enter the holy place and the holy of holies because of their sin. They were removed from it. This is essentially an object lesson for them and for us. An interesting side note is that separating the holy of holies from the holy place was a curtain. And on that curtain were two cherubim. And if you know anything about the story of the Garden of Eden, when the people are cast out from the garden, they're unable to enter back in because there are cherubim guarding it. Now, due to the Israelites' continued disobedience, this concept was emphasized again in a way equally as profound, which you can see on the right side of the screen. The people continued to sin, continued to disobey, and they were cast away from God's holy city, which represented the place of his dwelling, Jerusalem. And Israel was overrun by invader after invader. First, the Babylonians, then the Assyrians, then the Persians. And now, at the time of the events taking place in the book of John, the Roman Empire is ruling over Israel. Martha and the disciples and all the Jewish people desperately desired Rome to be overthrown, Jerusalem to be restored, and a way made back for God's people. This was their understanding of Old Testament prophecy. Most expected the Messiah to come and bring this about by riding as a warrior on a horse and defeating God's enemies. However, they also missed what the real problem was, what the real problem had always been. 
the beginning of this time of restoration, a way back to Jerusalem, is what Martha has in mind when she mentions the resurrection on the last day. Turn to Isaiah chapter 26. Isaiah chapter 26. And you can keep your finger in Isaiah because we'll be referencing it several times this morning. Listen to Isaiah 26, beginning in verse 16. It says, O Lord, in distress they sought you. They poured out a whispered prayer when your discipline was upon them. Like a pregnant woman who writhes and cries out in her pangs when she is near to giving birth, so were we because of you, O Lord. We were pregnant, we writhed, but we have given birth to wind. We have accomplished no deliverance in the earth, and the inhabitants of the world have not fallen. So here he's speaking of the people's sin and their falling away. And yet in the next verse, he says this, your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy, for your dew is a dew of light and the earth will give birth to the dead. So in the Old Testament, there is this promise of resurrection that precedes the inauguration of God's kingdom, the restoration of Israel and Jerusalem. So when Jesus says to Martha, I am the resurrection, what does he mean? He means that the reason resurrection will happen on the last day is because of him. Now, I know that the concept of resurrection may be hard for some of us to grasp today. We live in a supposed age of science and reason and perhaps skepticism. And maybe you believe or your friends believe that resurrection is simply an outlandish or outdated Christian belief. Although there are many good responses we could give, let me leave you with just one this morning. Why is there something in us that is crying out for resurrection? Why do we have an inward desire for it? Is that desire not the inward nudge toward a reality? Consider this. Atheism, scientism, and naturalism seek to explain our physical reality, but they do not satisfy the spiritual needs that are very real to us. See, we don't just want to know how our loved ones passed away in a literal sense. We want to know why. And we are not truly comforted by knowing that their memory will live on. We want them, their personality, their love. On the other hand, Eastern religions and modern spirituality seek to explain the spiritual aspects of our nature, but fail to satisfy the tangible physical realities around us. We don't just grieve the loss of our loved one's personality and spirit, but of their touch, their handshake, their hug, 
their smile. We desire resurrection. It's as if our soul is reaching out a desperate hand. And today, I would tell you that Jesus' hand reaches back and takes hold. I am the resurrection. It does exist. It is real. Through Jesus and Jesus alone, we will one day hear the laughter of those faith-filled believers who passed on before us. And we will embrace them with joy and gladness. All because of Jesus, God himself, who was crucified, died and was raised to life. The first fruit of many who will follow. One thing this means for us is that we must honor God with our body, mind, and souls. See, if our bodies will be raised and joined with our souls one day, then God must care about our whole being. You are not a soul trapped in a body. You are a human, body and soul together. Just because we will receive a glorified body one day doesn't mean we can do whatever we want in our bodies now. In the same way, we shouldn't purposefully sin just because we will someday be perfect. No, the glorified perfect state of us in the future, body, mind, and soul, shows that we must glorify God in all of these areas right now. And I would encourage you to read 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 12 through 20, to learn more about that. You can write that in your notes. Jesus alone meets our deepest desire for resurrection. Turn to Isaiah chapter 35. Isaiah continues his prophecy of the future restoration of Jerusalem and the welcoming of God's people. Verse 5 says this, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals, where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes, and a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray." When Jesus is speaking to his disciples in John 14, I believe this is what he's alluding to. You can put the graphic back on the screen. After all, Jesus' ministry was characterized by the healing of the blind, the deaf, the lame, and the mute. It shows us that the prophesied way has arrived. Jesus is the way of holiness that brings us back to this restored place. This is why the curtain in the temple was torn in two when Jesus died. 
This is why when Jesus walked out of his tomb, he walked right into a garden. In fact, the people that first met him thought he was the gardener. This is why Isaiah speaks about the desert place becoming like a garden. And those who walk on the way will not go astray. As Pastor Nate mentioned last week, no one, no one can take them from Jesus, not even their own waywardness. See, I think every human who has ever lived desires to get to this place of perfection. Look at the history of our world and look how far we've come. Today, we live in the most comfortable, satisfying, advanced civilization in the history of the world. You can have almost anything you want at the snap of your fingers. Why? What are we, what are we aiming at? Why are we trying so hard for this? And yet, we're no closer to perfection than the nations of old maybe worse in some respects. Why is it that with how hard we strive for perfection, we cannot attain it? Because perfection and paradise is a person. Our society's version of utopia isn't the goal. Jerusalem isn't the goal. The Holy of Holies isn't the goal. Eden itself isn't the goal. God is the goal. Right relationship with our Heavenly Father, that is paradise. Paradise without God is hell. This is what all of these signs and symbols we're pointing to restored relationship. Anything that we do, good works or great achievements, cannot make us perfect. The Titanic was not a good boat. Despite all of the good things about it, it had a fatal flaw. It could not reach its destination. The same is true with us. Despite all the good things about us, we are not good people because we also have a fatal flaw and we cannot reach the destination. We need somebody to be perfect for us. We need someone to be the way of holiness for us, to be what we can't. And Jesus says that it's him. He is the way. He is the way. This means that we must bring others to know Jesus at all costs doesn't matter how good someone is or how sincerely they hold to another religious belief. If they have not put their faith in Jesus, then they do not know God and they will not enter paradise. Wide 
is the road that leads to destruction. And I pray that our hearts would break for those who don't know Christ. Do we care more about comfort or achievement or our bank accounts than we do those who are lost on the wide road? Acts 4.12 says, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus alone meets our deepest desire for a way to the Father. Turn to Isaiah 65. After the highway appears for God's people, and they begin to ascend into Jerusalem, a distinction is made between the people of that sacred city and those who will face condemnation, as we just mentioned. Isaiah 65, beginning in verse 13, says this, therefore, the, therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, my servants shall eat, but you shall be hungry. Behold, my servants shall drink, but you shall be thirsty. Behold, my servants shall rejoice, but you shall be put to shame. Behold, my servants shall sing for gladness of heart, but you shall cry out for pain of heart and shall wail for breaking of spirit. You shall leave your name to my chosen for a curse, and the Lord God will put you to death. But his servants he will call by another name, so that he who blesses himself in the land shall bless himself by the God of truth. And he who takes an oath in the land shall swear by the God of truth because the former troubles are forgotten and are hidden from my eyes. Here we see that God's enemies, the false worshipers, will face destruction. But God's people will receive blessing literally by the God of truth. It is living in his truth that brings the blessing. And in John 14, Jesus says to the disciples, I am the truth. Maybe you're sitting here today and you or a friend has become numb to the idea of truth. Your friends say one thing and your family says another thing. One religion makes this claim and another makes that claim. There are so many talking voices and it seems so loud that you want to just drown them all out. Maybe you, like the postmodern philosophers, want to conclude that there is no truth. Or you can't know the truth, especially truth that can't be proven by science. If you've made those claims or have heard those claims, then the next question should always be this. Then why should I believe you? Do you believe your own claims about truth are true? And did you prove them by science before believing them? See, anyone who claims you can't know truth or truth doesn't exist is contradicting themselves. And they're proving the point. 
we all desire truth. Before Jesus was crucified, he stood before Pilate who presided as judge over him. And there were so many different voices telling Pilate so many different things. What he should and shouldn't believe. Finally, Pilate asked Jesus, so you are a king? Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate turned to him and said, what is truth? One day, as Isaiah 65 alludes to, Jesus and Pilate will again be face to face. And this time their roles will be reversed. I don't imagine Jesus will have to say anything. Pilate will know then what he failed to know before, that the truth was looking back at him. And he's looking at you too as you make your judgment of Jesus. Will you condemn him and dismiss him? Or will you get on your knees and worship him? If Jesus is the truth, it means we must hold firmly to the words given to us in scripture. They are God's words. As Paul says in Ephesians 4.14, we must not be tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. So how influenced are you by our society and culture? Even by your friends and family? Do you interpret other things through the lens of scripture or do you interpret scripture through the lens of other things? If you love Jesus, then you must love his word. Jesus alone meets our deepest desire for truth. Continue reading in Isaiah 65, the next verse, verse 17 says, for behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress." No more shall be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old and the sinner a hundred years shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be. And my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands." They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. 
While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lamb, the lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. This is the image of true life, eternal life with God for God's people. All the curses of this world will be undone. Death will no longer exist. Sadness will no longer exist. Just life. Perfect life. Because this is life with God. A restored relationship forever with the Father. Jesus tells his disciples that he is this life. And through him, we can have a taste of it right now. A powerful glimpse into this future reality. Like all the other things we mentioned, this too is what we desperately want. But as sinful humans, we search in all the wrong places for it. In Charles Dickens' classic novel, Great Expectations, Pip, the main character, is given a vast amount of wealth and goes from being a poor boy who dreams about a better life to an upper-class gentleman with more money than he needs. Yet, his desire for a better life never changes. Listen to this quote. We spent as much money as we could and got as little for it as people could make up their minds to give us. We were always more or less miserable, and most of our acquaintance were in the same condition. There was a happy fiction among us that we were constantly enjoying ourselves, and a skeleton truth that we never did. To the best of my belief, our case was in the last aspect, a rather common one. See, it's possible to be alive, but never actually live. We have this sense that there is life out there better than the one we experience right now. We try to find this life, but in all the wrong places. Listen to C.S. Lewis. He says, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. Jesus offers us life and life to the full, not free from hardship right now, but full of joy and meaning right now. And one day, we will experience the life that Isaiah speaks of through Jesus. This means that fullness of life is experienced when we live as Jesus lived. It means we must forsake our wants and our desires to do what will most please the Father and benefit others. 
You can read more about this in Philippians chapter two, about Jesus condescending, humbling himself for others. This life is not only counterintuitive, but it's also countercultural. In what ways does your life look like the life of Jesus? And are we teaching our children to value the kind of life that Jesus lived more than they value the type of life that the world offers? We must constantly remind ourselves and our families that Jesus alone meets our deepest desire for life. We all deeply desire resurrection, a way to the Father, truth, and life. And Jesus came so that those desires might be found and fulfilled in him. A 15th century Dutch theologian said it like this, without the way, there is no going. Without the truth, there is no knowing. Without the life, there is no living. We cannot find these things through philosophies, ideas, achievements, or anything else, but only in a person, only in Jesus. And isn't that the most comforting thing? See, when a little child falls and skins his knee, what is most comforting to him is not an idea or a concept. You're fine. You're tough. It's not that bad. But rather, a father or mother who puts their arms around him and picks him up. All of the things that we most long for even life itself has a face and smiles back and reaches out and takes us in his arms. If only we lift up our hands to him. Trust him. Trust him and worship him this morning. Let's pray. Father, Thank you that we can come to you right now because of Jesus. Lord, we look forward to the resurrection. The death does not have the final word. Thank you that we have a way back to you so we no longer have to be lost. Thank you that Jesus is the truth that we can turn to when we do not know where to turn. Thank you that Jesus is the life that we so desperately long for but cannot attain for ourselves. I pray right now that beyond all of the practical applications that come from this, Lord, that we would just worship you right now, in our minds and in our hearts, we might turn our affections to you, that you might be glorified.
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.